Want a better way to hire? We asked businesses across Australia. We trialled Liam through Youth Jobs Path and then hired him as a design assistant. Liam is so keen to learn. He gets along with everyone and we get help with wage and training costs. Louise gave me a go and now I've got a job. Yeah, it worked for us. To find motivated young staff and get up to $10,000 in assistance, search Youth Jobs Path. Authorised by the Australian Government Canberra, spoken by Jay Green, L Nobes and L Nicolau. Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan. David Scott is on assignment covering the beaches and cocktails uh, of Samoa. So I'm joined this week by uh, two great guests, um, Business Insider's contributing editor for Markets and Economics, Greg McKenna. Greg, thanks for coming on the show. Great to be here. Um, and we're also joined by uh, David Bassanis, uh, who's Chief Economist at BetaShares, uh, which is an EDF-based uh, asset management company with over $2.5 billion under management. Um, and David is also one of Australia's best-known market commentators. David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Paul. Great to be here. A uh, quick rundown on, uh, on David's CV, guys, and, and, and be jealous. Um, he's had stints as an economist at the Federal Treasury and the OECD. Uh, he was an interest rate strategist at BT Financial, and he was uh, a highly regarded financial columnist at the Australian Financial Review uh, for more than a decade. Uh, Greg, too, has an amazing career in financial markets, um, having been uh, head of currency strategy at Westpac and NAB, um, and uh, as well as uh, having spent time as an interest rate trader. So um, uh, interest rates, um, bond returns, and also what's happening with ETFs, um, and the, the growth of the ETF sector um, in, in, uh, in share trading, uh, all huge topics. So um, I think it's going to be a great chat and looking forward to it. Um, so on the agenda, just quickly, we're going to have a look at uh, central bank policy around the world. Are central banks running out of ideas? Um, some of them are starting to put the... Uh, Put the uh, the, uh, the burners on uh, on politicians to um, to to uh, try and help stimulate economies because um, there's so little uh, firepower left in monetary policy. Um, we're going to look quickly at reporting season and how that's going. Um, we'll take a look at the Australian economic data that came out this week, and we might have a quick chat about our favourite economic data releases um, because we're nerds like that. Okay, um, so. Uh, the U.S. Fed, um, I had a quick look at market pricing. Um, there's now a 50% chance of a, uh, of a rate increase from the Fed um, by the end of the year. You know, if you think back over the last couple of years, this has been a consistent story um, with the U.S. Federal Reserve um, in terms of the horizon for, um, for moving on, on interest rates, which, um, you know, and when they did finally move, it did cause some ructions. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the horizons for the next move um, just seem to be getting kicked down the road all the time. Um, you know, and you look around at the, the Bank of Japan, they're buying all sorts of things. Glenn Stevens sort of putting, pushing, putting pressure on Australian politicians. Um, and meanwhile, in all of this, global stocks have been grinding higher in a rally that almost nobody believes is uh, sustainable. So, um, David, I might start with you. Do you think um, central banks have maybe misread what's happening uh, in the global economy or um, taken uh, misguided actions uh, in this just uh, race to the bottom on, uh, on, on monetary policy? Uh, yeah, thanks, Paul. Look, um, I, I do, actually. I think the markets of uh, – well, sorry, the central banks are – I mean, obviously, the big issue is inflation. They're all worried about inflation being um, too low, uh, and they think, you know, st cutting interest rates, stimulating their economies will get inflation up. But um, And they talk about weak growth. But, in fact, if you look at it, unemployment rates in Europe, um, not, well, 
particularly in the United States, but even in Japan and in Europe, have, have come down since the GFC. So growth you know, in the industrialised world has been above potential if you define it by unemployment rates falling. Uh, and in fact, the RBA in their quarterly statement talked about you know, many economies at close to full employment now. Uh, and you can, arguably in Japan and, and in the United States, they actually are at full employment. So you've got to argue it's not deficient demand, really, that's driving low inflation. It's, uh, I think, a lot of supply side, like globalisation, increased competition, declining commodity prices. Um, and they're actually tackling, they're misdiagnosing the problem, essentially. Um, I don't think whatever they do is going to get inflation up anytime soon. Uh, and they actually should be focusing on the fact growth is, is actually OK. Potential growth has come down through population ageing. Um, and what they risk doing is, is inflating assets. I think financial stability, global financial uh, stability is becoming a bigger issue that uh, the Fed particularly are ignoring. But, uh, yeah, so I actually think they're getting it wrong, and it's like wrong way go back. Yeah, so you've got these, this big, you know, these big asset, um, what appear to be bubbles in some places, but this big surge in asset prices. The classic example of the Australian property market, Canada's property market in some places, um, and what's happening uh, with global equities. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the US market, the, the price to forward earnings ratio there is now around 17 or so. Um, it's rarely been at this level and, and stayed at this level over the past decade and a half outside of the, the dot-com uh, bubble. That's when it was floating up around 20 or so. Um, and usually these are levels at which it's pulled back. And at the moment, it's comfortably at these levels and, and it's maybe edging higher. So... You know, I think continued benign neglect on the part of the Fed is, is potentially going to cause these PE ratios to go up. Now, relative to interest rates where they are, you could arguably say, OK, it's fair value or it's justified. But, you know, I think everyone also concedes, you know, bond yields, this is the greatest bubble in, in, in history, um, that, you know, yields globally are, are so low and negative in many countries. It's, um, you know, we're going to look back at this and say what an incredible bubble that we generated and, and we basically, the bond bubble that, that has developed is now spilling over in, into the equity market which I think is a big risk if it, and, and, you, as you, and you've also mentioned the property market but I think particularly the, I don't think the equity market is a bubble yet but we're on the cusp of it becoming a bubble and becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy where expectations feed on themselves so um, yeah. And of course you know in, in this situation um, you know one of the things we've seen in the last maybe two months has been some of this cash that's been sitting on the sidelines. You know, you just got to, you know, people have felt the temptation, I've got to get in um, when, as, the, um, as, the, as the global stock indices have been rising. Greg, what's your, your take on this? Um, you know, you've um, been writing about this pretty much daily um, for, for years now. Um, has, your shift, has your thinking shifted at all on, on where central banks um, are? Uh, no, I was lucky enough um, in early 2009 to read a book, which was a, uh, by a, an, uh, not an economist, by a historian, David Hackett's Fisher, and uh, it was a look at the history of uh, global inflation for the last thousand years. Um, and it looked at how it had cycled and banking, and, and in doing that it's also uh, a history of banking crisis through the years and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and what that uh, showed is that except for that 70-year period straight after uh, the Second World War, for the most part, the global economy had really low growth and really low inflation. And so what I think we're going through now is, is that in many ways central banks are fighting the wrong war. And as David alluded to, because we've got ageing populations and service-based economies, I think what we're actually losing is the variability of 
uh, economic growth up and down, and you're also losing uh, the, the ability for economies to grow quickly. If we're in service-based uh, economies, you know, uh, people looking after older people, people providing IT services, you know, us here making this podcast, those kind of things, uh, then the growth rate of, of those, except, as I know, this thing, you know, devils and details is growing exponentially on iTunes. Um, you know, besides those kind of new areas, it's really hard to get decent growth across the economy. So I think that the central banks in many ways are causing the problem by going into negative territory because they're signalling to people that it's an emergency when in fact if they recalibrate their expectations, which is we are now in a low growth, low inflation world, and as David says, more people are working, even here in Australia, sure we might be getting a lot of part-time jobs, but more people are working than ever before. And the employment to population ratio is not terrible. Uh, the participation rate is not terrible. And so what we've got is we've got a globe that is challenged if we view things in the paradigm that was post-World War II. But if you take a longer view of where we are now and where we're headed in the next sort of 20, 30, 40, 50 years, um, this is probably what the future is going to look like. So I think they're fighting the wrong war. Um, so maybe, David, how do you recalibrate this? Uh, I mean, so we've had really... I suppose the golden era of uh, inflation targeting central bank policy has been the last, say, three decades or so. Um, but how do you recalibrate this? And where do you go? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, basically, like, again, let's remember inflation at the end of the day is a means to an end. And that's what they were, they were targeting inflation because they sort of... Th- saw it as the best way of achieving maximum growth and, and low unemployment. So you've almost got to recalibrate it to say our ta- ultimate target is, is underutilised capacity or unemployment. And so you say, OK, the Fed's got to say, you know what, we're at full employment, um, we've done as much as we can do, um, we've got to renormalise interest rates gradually um, and you know, focus on financial stability risks as well. I mean... You know, the Fed famously under Greenspan said, we don't worry about asset bubbles until they explode. Well, that, you know, that's completely the wrong approach. And, um, uh, but, yeah, I think at the end of the day, focus on the fact that growth, even in Japan, you know, unemployment is at the lowest level since the late 1990s. I mean, the Japanese economy has is, is been doing okay. And um, so I just go, I mean, just another one point, follow up on Greg. I mean, I think we're on the same page here. But I mean, if you think about low inflation, uh, it's actually, the way I kind of see it is productivity growth these days is being manifested through lower prices rather than higher growth. And so all the benefits of, of productivity, you, know, you think of all the technological improvements over the last few years, it's cutting prices. And so we're getting real, real income gains, but it's coming through weaker prices and, in fact, falling prices in a lot of areas. So, you know, it's actually it, we're almost mismeasuring, you know, the, the economy in a way. The, so, yeah, so it gets, the, so, yeah, so central, as I said, centra, as Greg said, central banks are fighting the wrong war and they've got to completely rethink, um, you know, what's going on in the global economy. So wasn't it the Bank of England's uh, chief economist um, on the weekend, um, Andrew Haldane, I think is his name? Um, uh, and he was uncharacteristically blunt. I remember reading it and thinking, God, can you imagine if, uh, you know, a senior official from somewhere like the RBA or Treasury um, came out and said what he said, but he said, look, this, I have to, the priority must be job creation. Everybody else who's worried about particularly savers, and this is a debate very relevant in Australia too, with this aging, the same issue with the aging population, um, people who are transitioning to retirement or are in retirement and they're relying on um, term deposits or whatever for some income, um, you know, they're not happy about um, where interest rates have been going. 
Um, but uh, Haldane's um, uh, argument is at all costs, jobs need to be the priority. Yeah, that's right. Uh, he's targeting two things there. One is old school central banking, which is more people uh, have jobs, uh, so more people get paid, more people spend the velocity of money going through the economy. Uh, it accelerates and you get people spending and you get multiplier effects and all that kind of stuff. That's besides the fact that you know more people working is, is a better social good anyway. Um, if from an economic point of view, it gets money moving around the economy and that's a good thing. Uh, the other thing, uh, the point that he was trying to make about uh, jobs first, not savers, is that Savings are there for a reason, and that's one of the points that we make here in Australia or Scott Morrison has made about superannuation, is when you build up that super nest egg, I'm sorry that the returns are lower than you expected, but you built the nest egg up to draw it down. And that's the point that Haldane made and Scott Morrison's made, and that's the point that the protected species that seem to be Australian superannuants are going to have to you know, come to understand uh, this is not a wealth transfer mechanism between generations. That's what the House is for. Yeah. Just on the Bank of England, I also point out. I mean, in his case, you know, the UK has a special circumstance at the moment. It's Brexit, so unlike many other economies, it's facing a, a massive negative shock, which potentially could send it into recession. So it is a special case in terms of you know wanting to stimulate their economy. They may need to, but it's certainly not the case in you know Europe more broadly, Japan, and uh, and the United States. Um, I want to look quickly uh, at, um, uh, at the ASX reporting season, which is underway. Um, when you look at the index, it's really not moving around that much. Um, you know, uh, I think today, Thursday, as we're recording, you know, that half a point move in, in the index, um, half a percentage point. Um, and it's kind of been like that all week. Uh, I think there's been a few um, standouts, I think, AMP, um, you know, posting a, a big fall in, in profit. Um, the shares were off 5%. Uh, Domino's um, announced another really aggressive um, expansion expansion plan. Really interesting company, but, uh, you know, they were previous, the previous guidance was 900 stores for Australia. They're now targeting 1,200. Uh, I just find that is just an eye-popping number for, for, for a country this size. Um, it makes you think about, well, you know, what's the, um, the, the counter strategy to that? Can, can you buy, you know, heart medicine or, you know, um, whatever it is. But, um, uh, you know, so, so Domino's really interesting. Uh, and Webjet um, shares are up 19% today. Um, you know, interesting little company. It's just popped. Um, but overall, um, uh, you know, the bank's a little bit of extra bad debt. Um, which kind of expected, um, but nothing uh, spectacular to report. Um, David, anything that's really caught your eye? Oh, look, overall, I mean, it, the, earning, the earnings numbers are, are pretty uh, muted, really. I mean, the, for the financial year, we're looking at a negative, you know, a decline, and um, I think nothing we've seen so far changes that. I mean, to me, I'm still, I'm a macro person, so I look at it from the big picture, and, you know, we've got weak wages growth, weak inflation, poor productivity growth. I mean, it's a very hard environment to expect profits to grow. And we've got, you know, commodity price... Obviously, the miners being hurt by the, um, the decline in commodity prices so far. Um, as you said, like, the, probably the smaller, you know, the smaller growth stocks, you know, the online, online pure plays, those sort of ones are obviously doing well, but they're a very small part of the overall market. I mean, the big picture is the... The miners and the banks are all challenged for different reasons, and they make a big up, make up a big chunk of our market. So that's basically holding us back. Um, the other issue I have is, um, you know, the market is still looking at strong earnings, well, relatively strong earnings growth over the coming year, which I still think is going to be a struggle, particularly in the mining sector. You're looking at, you know, quite 
uh, an aggressive expected turnaround in earnings growth there, and I think all that's happened is analysts haven't yet revised down their forecasts for the coming year, because um, commodity prices at best are probably going to be flat. I can't really see them bouncing back a, a hell of a lot. Um, and yeah, a lot of the other areas are still quite challenged. You know, we've got a lot of mature companies and in, in mature industries in terms of the large cap sector, and um, that's holding back things. Yeah, and and there, um, you know, when inflation is where it is, wages growth is where it is. Um, so you know, look at the consumer sector, banking. Um, you know, they will be looking to increase their margins through. You know, and they're going to have the extra capital requirements coming on stream in the next couple of years. Um, so they're going to be looking for their margins through efficiency. Um, which, you know, that's right. I mean, banks, I think, are going to be looking at more cost cutting. I mean, that's the the, the one obvious avenue to, to, to boost earnings growth, you know, um, there's probably a lot of scope still to do that, which is not great news for those that work in the banking sector, but, um, you know, that's the way it is. And similarly with the retail sector, you know, Woolworths and Coles facing a lot of competition from Aldi, um, it's hard to grow the top line, so you're going to have to, you know, uh, look at, relook at costs. Um, yeah, so that that's probably where the earnings growth uh, is going to be coming from, and until we get a, you know, a decent cyclical rebound in our economy, you know, something growing around 4% or so, um, we may be challenged. I mean, I'm, I'll be more confident when I see the Aussie dollar breaking through 70 cents and heading to 65 or lower. Um, that's really going to be the next catalyst for our economy, I think. Yeah, you, you know, you can't kill the Aussie with a, you can't hit the Aussie with a stick at the moment, um, just on every, every fall. I mean, I think it was last Friday on some weekly retail sales numbers from um, from the US, everything sort of rolled over. The Aussie, you know, dropped almost a cent. Wake up Monday, oh, you know, Asia gets in. What will we do? Buy Aussie. Um, so, um, but can I ask you quickly about the, the, the ETFs in this environment? So, a lot of people talked about 2016 as being, you know, a time when, you know, st picking individual stocks was going to become really important in the share market. Uh, so, how does that work, uh, uh, ETF um, perspective? Well, ETFs, of course, I mean, they, they basically manage funds which invest in a collection of stocks, but I guess they, they, we approach it from a more thematic point of view. So, again, if you like resources as, as an investment idea, you could buy an ETF that tracks the resources sector, so you don't have to choose between BHP or, or Rio or Fortescue. You can just buy the, buy the group, uh, similarly with financials. Um, but also there are things like high income, like obviously over the past year the... Um, the defensive, what I've called the defensive yield theme, the yield chase in the market, um, which I've been, you know, talking about for a year, has just been going on and on and on. It's been the, the trades in this environment, and um, again, a lot of ETFs allow you to to get buy a collection of high yielding companies all in one hit, um, which have done pretty well as well. Because you're not only getting what was a quite attractive yield a year or so ago, but you've got the the rally in prices as as the effective downward pressure on those yields has, has come through. So, you know, ETFs, you know, do allow you to play the market from a lot of different themes, a lot of big picture themes. Uh, and so if you were buying a company for a theme, uh, as I said, be it resources or financials or interest rates, um, you can um, basically diversify out the stock-specific risk and buy an ETF that, that covers that theme. So um, there's certainly been a lot of, you know, active uh, play in that area, like gold's another one. You know, you can buy an ETF that either tracks the gold price per se, we have one of those, or, or, or a fund gold that companies. tracks gold miners. Yeah, we've just launched one, for example, that... Um, Gives you access to global gold miners. That would have been um, doing pretty well uh, first yeah, half of this year. Done, done very well. I mean, Australian local gold miners have done well, but um, 
But again, there's no ETF that covers those per se, so you still have to stock, stock pick. And plus, it's a, you know, you've got the country's stock-specific risk associated with that. So, but ETFs certainly allow you to, 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 to pick and choose within the market, uh, but just using a different basis, um, you know, more bigger picture thematics, which, uh, which, is, which is what I like and which is why I'm at BetaShares. Um, so, and um, just to um, just to give you a quick plug on this, obviously you've got um, you've got a book out on this that you've um, revised the the Australian ETF guide. Yes, thanks, Paul. Uh, yeah, the Australian ETF guide. It's uh, it's basically a summary of where we are in terms of the market today. It goes through all the different ETFs that exist in the market. Uh, different ways in which you can invest in them. So uh, it's, a, it's a hard area to write about because it's so rapidly changing. No sooner do I think I've, I've finished the book that a bunch of new ETFs come out. But um, uh, it is available. You can get it as an e-book uh, uh, through iBooks or, or on Amazon or, or as, a, as a print book as well through areas like book, Booktopia or, or Amazon. So, you know, if people are interested in the ETF area and want to know more, definitely, you know, have a look at it. So. Um, okay. Now, so you're listening to the Devils in Details podcast, uh, Business Insider Australia. I'm here with uh, Greg McKenna and David Bassanis. Um, okay. Uh, we're going to have a quick look at um, the Australian data that was out this week. We've touched quickly on the low inflation picture, and part of this is wages. Um, again, uh, you know, um, the quarterly, um, well, in the year to June, wages rose 2.1%. Rose That's the same as it was um, in the year to March. Uh, private sector, uh, private sector uh, wages growth over the year was 2%. Um, now, it's a very low number, um, but then again, you know, headline inflation running at um, pretty much 1%, uh, and core inflation sort of 1.5 to um, a little bit more. Um, and maybe headed lower. Um, so, Greg, what's your take on, on the wages picture and, um, and, and how that's looking for, for people and what, what, what it means for the, for the broader economy? I think that the wages outlook is, is one of those, uh, those things because it's changed so much from what we've experienced in the economy since the accord back in the 80s that people are still recalibrating their expectations of, of what they are doing. You know, I, I know as a director of a, of a small bank, you know, negotiating and talking to, to people about what they can expect in terms of a wage rise uh, has been an interesting conversation to have over the last you know couple of years because people were still anchored. So I think to a certain extent that's been a handbrake on uh, on consumption in the economy and also it's a handbrake on consumption because if Australia's debt levels are as high as they are, all-time records from a household level uh, on average, uh, if people aren't willing to dip into their savings the way that the uh, you know the budget expects them to. Uh, you know we've already seen a three or four percent drop in the savings rate over the past year or two. So people have been spending out of savings. So if, if wages are only growing two percent, it's hard for consumption in the economy and that kind of thing to grow much further. But to the point you just made and the one David made earlier, uh, the wages are actually growing faster than prices. So we are still getting a little bit of a bigger bang for our buck. So I, I think that the wage growth we're getting is consistent with where the economy is and where it's going, um, but I, I think that it's, it is a handbrake on consumption in the economy right now, and that's not going to change in a hurry. Yeah, and um, uh, David, how do, you, how do you see this? Yeah, look, I, I'd agree. Like the the, the wages, no, I mean, I get, from a, from a, from from an economic economic point of view, the RBA point of view, I mean, I guess it's a it is true. Inflation is low, so in real wages are growing, but 
Uh, it is symptomatic of what is still excess capacity in the labour market. So as the RBA point out that the unemployment rate is sub 6%, so it's about 5.8%, I think was out today, or 5.7, now it's 5.7. But if you look at underemployment, uh, the so, you know, the, basically the, the people that the, the are working, say, part-time that would like to have full-time um, jobs and, and the, the ABS survey, this is part of the Labor Force survey, you get an underemployment rate. And, and as the RBA has pointed out, that, that hasn't declined by that much in recent years and still relatively high. So the unemployment rate per se probably understates the degree of labour market softness. Um, so that's why the RBA is cutting rates. And in our, in our economy, again, unlike in, say, the United States or Japan, we do have spare capacity in the labour market. So there is a role for monetary policy to cut rates and get growth at above trend a trend um, a pace. So again, the, the low wage number is a signal for the RBA to, to remain on an easing bias and probably, I think, cut rates again. Yeah, I, if I could add that the underemployment um, issue or question, it, it seems to be a big one in the economy. People are starting to talk about it more, um, but we know from our numbers, whenever we write about part-time employment or underemployment, those stories just go off. And so a lot of readers, a lot of people trying to get to the nub of you know, why they're being offered less hours or why they can only get a part-time job or why they need two part-time jobs or however they, you know, they want to run their life. I, I'm, I'm reasonably sure looking at how our um, articles chart whenever we write about part-time employment or underemployment, that there is a lot of Australians who would like more work. And so there is a lot of capacity. And I guess that means that the RBA is biased towards you know, much lower rates. David, where do you think they'll go? Well, uh, I, I think they, they it, well, how, they could go all the way to zero if they need to. But I mean, I think there's, a, I think if the RBA does decide to cut rates again, it's probably going to have two in mind again. Like it won't, I, I, I don't think it'll formally start signalling another rate move unless it thinks it's going to go to one. Um, they don't usually think about, like we saw earlier this year, when they cut that, cut that time from 2 to 1.75, they probably had 1.5 in mind, and it was going to be based on inflation basically continuing to remain low. And so I think they'll probably go in November on the back of the, uh, what's probably going to be another low CPI number, uh, and then maybe one in, in February next year. And again, the driver, for, to my mind, is that the, if you look at the RBA forecast, they've got underlying inflation going from 1.5 uh, to back to 2% by the middle of next year. Now, as that becomes more and more unlikely, and we'll see that with the next CPI result probably, if it looks like inflation is going to be sub 2% uh, up until mid-next mid year, then, that, again, that's a signal to, to, to cut rates. Um, I think the, the people do talk an awful lot about the casualisation of the workforce, right? So I think the country's also facing a whole... Absolutely, there are people out there who do not have as much work as they would like. But there are a couple of other structural and maybe social issues at play here. One is aging population, some people who used to work 40 hours, you know, deciding, okay, well, I'm going to work 30 instead, uh, and that gets counted as part-time. Just I have the numbers here in front of me. Um, uh, this month's jobs data showed, again, big. Uh, there was a 26,000, uh, 26.6 thousand uh, increase in in jobs uh, in the economy last month, but that was all driven um, by um, uh, part-time jobs. So um, as wild as these numbers are, um, the ABS data says that you know, part-time employment increased 71,600, right? And full-time employment fell uh, 45,400. Now, look, 
everybody takes these numbers with a pinch of salt these days, but there's a signal in the noise, right? So the net job creation um, is coming from uh, part-time casual employment. Now, I think is it 35 hours um, is the is the benchmark for that's what what cancers. Um. Now, there's another issue I think, and particularly this is a case in in, in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, so flexibility in work uh, is becoming a um, a big thing for companies. So it's a thing that they want to be able to offer people. They want to be able to offer them the two to three day. Uh, periods, um, um, Australia, you know, after moving down the path of um, uh, uh, paid maternity leave um, a few years ago, I think under the Gillard government, um, so you get, um, you know, the, the state-mandated uh, uh, maternity leave and you get minimum wage over a certain period of time, but then there's return-to-work schemes, and this has been a big thing for corporate culture and corporate Australia to try to address. Um, and then the other thing is that the cost of childcare, particularly in the eastern states, very, very high. Um, so the return you get for going, even if you're, you know, um, a reasonably paid job, but you might be paying a hundred bucks plus for um, for childcare for the day. So, um, you know, um, that's a little bit of a disincentive. I think not. Again, none of these things are. You can point at them and say, well, this is exactly the the problem that that we have. But when you roll them all up. Um, you start to get this thing, you know, the aging population, casualization, uh, sorry, the, the corporate Australia offering more f uh, flexible work solutions. Um, uh, also, you know, technology enabling this, uh, this freelance economy, the cost of childcare. Um, and you get this, well, maybe, you know, this is kind of a bit of a new normal that the, the, the nature of work and how, how we think about work is changing. Uh, you look just just on that. I mean, I guess if you look at uh, part, you know, obviously the growth of part-time employment makes a lot of sense uh, in terms of um, ageing population. You know, uh, more females uh, working, mothers, I guess, you know, trying to manage both, you know, family life and work life. So there is a, a good element of uh, what I'd call voluntary, I guess, part-time employment. But again, the ABS survey of underemployment, the, the, the specific question they ask is, are you working? You know, would you like to work more hours? And, they, and if you say yes, that's involuntary part-time employment. So I, I, so I do agree with you that a lot of what we're seeing is a structural uh, thing, which is, which is great, but there does, or at least from the, the, what the ABS are telling us and what anecdotally people are saying, is that there is still a, a chunk of people out there that are working fewer hours than they would like, and that's you know, a, a, an element of labour market softness. Okay, um, we're going to talk quickly about currencies. Um, so my favourite story um, of the week is um, Mongolia, um, where the um, where the currency, I think the Tugrik it's called, is depreciated 22-something percent um, against the dollar over the last few weeks. Um, Mongolia has apparently raised interest rates by 4.5 percent. That's 450 basis points um, to now 15 percent. Um, you know these things happen in uh, in emerging uh, countries from time to time. But um, the uh, couple of things been a couple of really interesting moves on um, global currency markets this week. Australian dollar um, again finding buyers um, uh, all over the joint, um, and then the yen as well. Um, you know the. Uh, um, the, um, the dollar yen has been uh, has been surging away. So great. Yes, yeah, so the currency markets have been really interesting this year. The uh, the yen was under 100 earlier today, and it's only just over as we as we walked in the room. Uh, you know, there, there's no fundamental reason why dollar yen should be down near 100. 
given the relative outlooks for interest rates in both countries, you know, given the relative rates of growth. All the usual metrics don't seem to apply to Dolly and so it's a, it's a big conundrum. And, and largely what it seems to be is that um, this whole idea of central banks where we started the, the discussion about them being you know, powerless to do anything has come home to Japan with the, the move to negative interest rates earlier this year. And the market's gone, well, you can't do anything, so you know, there's no way you're going to be able to weaken your currency, so we're just going to buy yen. And that's really destabilised uh, currency markets all over the place. Uh, Euro's back at 113. Uh, sterling uh, bounced from its post-Brexit lows the other night with the US dollar weaker. The Aussie keeps finding some and it's all about interest rates. It's all about you know where we are, two percent bond rate. Where the Kiwis have got their bond rate, they're doing well too. Uh, and then all these negative rates below. So you know, uh, high yielder. We used to be called a commodity currency. Then everyone hated us uh, because our economy was seen as old world. Uh, you know, now we're a high yielder. You know, <laughs> I'm sure we'll be an emerging market next. But you know, <laughs> there, there, there's no reason to sell the Aussie dollar except almost everyone's long at the moment. Yeah. Look. Um yeah, the the currency markets. Are, you're right. I mean, in terms of Australia, I think people are realising. Yeah, we, we at one point we were thought of as a commodity currency, but now they realise like the financial sector makes up a big chunk of our index, and and dividend yields in the Australian market are pretty good. So people are attracted to both the equity market and um, you know sovereign bond yields. Even at you know two percent ten year bond is uh, is still relatively That's attractive. Good. So uh, yeah, whereas. And so yields in this environment are becoming more, even more important than they, they have been. I mean, Japan's also got that special case of, you know, I guess capital flows and the, the sort of, you know, the, the, there's a, you know, natural tendency for, for um, the currency to sort of go up if, if, if the Japan aren't trying to, you know, spend a lot of money offshore. Um, but uh, it's a tough one. I've been calling the Aussie dollar down. You know, I've, I've been happy with my interest rate call in the past year. I thought if the RPA cut to 1.5%, um, the Aussie's got to go down, and it uh, just hasn't gone down. So uh, got one right, and I'm still working on the second call. Yeah, and I, look, I, I imagine there's been quite, a, you know, a lot of uh, currency traders, including major, major institutions, um, who've been short Aussie for a long time and just keep getting run over. Yeah, one of the key uh, key points, I guess, um, it, it seems strange, but a lot of people don't appreciate that it. You know, every currency or most currencies, 87% of all currencies traded on the planet, had the US dollar on the other side. So the US dollar is a really important, um, you know, driver, uh, whether it's the Aussie or or sterling or euro or or you know that uh, Mongolian currency. Uh, you know, and the reality is that because the Fed keeps stepping back from tightening. Uh, the market, the, the US dollar has stopped strengthening, and that's where a lot of people have come unstruck. You would have thought that with a cash rate at 1.5%, uh, with the Aussie 10-year bond spread at 40 or 50 basis points, um, that, you know, the Aussie wouldn't look so so great. But, you know, I'm, I'm about to publish an article, uh, you know, today that just looks at the cash rate, and Australia stands out miles ahead. So the Aussie isn't going to sustainably fall, it doesn't seem, unless there's a housing crisis, commodities crash again, or the Fed finally, you know, starts to jack rates up the way that it said. You know, earlier this year it said it was going to do four, and it's done none. So we wait and see. You're listening to the Devils and Details podcast on Business Insider Australia. I'm here with Greg McKenna and David Bassanis. Um, we're going to talk quickly, just nerd out a bit again, and um, talk about our... Um, uh, our favourite economic uh, data releases. There's uh, an economist I know who, um, as, a, as a proxy for the employment market, used to look at the data from the M4 
uh, toll charges, right? So, and you see that, you know, uh, you know, continually going up, and it sort of goes for him. That was the sign that look, yeah, look, the people are going to work, and tradies are coming and going. Um, and um, and the other the other thing I suppose that I sort of like to look at is um, airfares on the Sydney to Melbourne route. Um, so particularly for the uh, the the, the um, for business fares, because if there's a lot of activity and heat in that sector, you know there's deals going down, there's M and A, there's um, you know um, there's people selling um, between the cities, um, and um, you know it's always a good sign. Um, my favourite official sort of second tier data releases retail sales because I love the way it breaks down. I love what it tells you about um, whether people are filling their apartments, all those apartments that people are, are buying. Um, you know, when you look at um, the uh, household goods, um, that always tells you, will, will tell you a little bit about and what the activity is like there. Um, and it also shows you cafes and restaurants. And uh, it was, Greg, this is something that you, you taught me, which is, uh, you know, it's sort of a good proxy for how people are feeling. Um, you know, if, uh, if, uh, if cafes and restaurants are, are doing well, um, then, you know, um, then you can tell that people are, are a little bit upbeat. One of the things that's interesting, I suppose, and maybe muddying the retail sales number at the moment is this really low inflation picture, right? So there's massive competition that's come into the retail sector. Um, and it's across cafes, restaurants, because you get the take away, you've got the menu logs, um, all of that stuff, um, and it's keeping a lid on prices, and of course the retail uh, sales data is, 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 in, um, is in dollar terms, so, so it doesn't really show you volumes, um, but, um, but that's my favorite. Um, Greg, do you have a particular um, uh, favorite? Up, up until the recent RBA rate cut, um, the, the NAB business survey was my out-and-out favourite. Uh, it, uh, it always tells you what's going on in the economy, the, the granularity of it. Not only do we get business conditions, we get confidence, but you can discount confidence because Australian business always seems to be you know, more pessimistic than what its conditions are suggesting it should be. You know, trading's been really strong. You can see when the economy's going well or not. Uh, you know, the, the profitability's been strong. Employment's improved. I think it, it really gives you a good picture on what's going on in the underlying economy. It doesn't really tell you a lot, though, about what the RBA is doing at the moment because uh, of, you know, their focus on inflation and the need to, to, to push rates down. But overall, if I was only able to look at one piece of economic data every month, it would be that NAB business survey. I think it tells you everything you need to know. Yeah, David, do you have a do you have a favourite? Um, because you've been doing this for so long, and you've had you've worn so many different hats. I wonder if you've got a, any anything in particular that really um, you keep your eye on. Look, um, look, I, I, the NAB business survey has been taken. I would have I would have mentioned that the business confidence. Uh, sorry, the business conditions index. I think if there is a single key indicator in the economy, it's probably that monthly NAB conditions index. But I, I would add um, probably if I, I mean let me can I can I say two. Absolutely. All right. Two ANZ job ads, I think, is always a good key. It's it's you know good if, if job ads are going up, you know the labour market's broadly strengthening. If it's going down, whereas employment numbers can be a bit volatile, it does sort of track the unemployment rate relatively well as well. So um, it, it's a good confirming indicator of where unemployment going, which is ultimately a, a measure of whether the economy is growing above or below potential. And the other one I'd throw in there is building approvals because the housing sector is a very important cyclical driver of the economy. And so if building approvals are going up, it uh, you know, adds you know, probably 1% or so percent to the economy. If they're going down, it takes 1% or so percent off. And um, at the moment, they've been high but rolling over, not collapsing. So, but I'm, wait, I'm watching that one importantly to see you know, the downside from the housing sector. But, uh, well, yeah. What's your... Um, what would be your best take on what will happen? Um, I think it was an interesting story in the Finn as, um, this week. Where was a guy was talking about some executive who was talking about when he drives out to the airport from his 
um, palatial office out to you know fly down to Melbourne and <laughs> do some deals. Uh, he sees these uh, apartments and um, uh, and he sees no lights on. Um, and for him, that is well, you know, we've got these people have bought these things, but nobody's living in them. Uh, and he talks about well, this indicator of how much investment enthusiasm there is. Um, now, absolutely no doubt that investors have been buying these, whether there, you know, there's a lot of very significant component of them from, from overseas. Um, so if people have bought something in Australia and just parking it here, um, you know, fine. Um, uh, as long as they can serve as the mortgage and it's not in Australia, you know. Um, so, but I, uh, where's your take of where this, um, where this, might, uh, where this might go? Uh, well, yeah, like the, the sort of high-rise apartment building boom in um, Melbourne in particular, but Sydney and then Brisbane to a degree, I mean, yeah, I think there's obviously excess supply being built, um, driven by, uh, you know, the, again, the ch- broadly the chase for yield, so investors have been getting into that market. Also, you know, as you mentioned, the Chinese. I mean, I, I have no, no doubt that it's overbuilding now, I, but I think it's still only a, a segment of the housing sector. So I think... You know, new apartments are probably going to peel off 10, 20% in price over the next, you know, three years or three to five years on resale. But um, at least to the extent a lot of the Chinese buying is really just getting money out of China, they're they'll probably not going to be uh, panic sellers. They'll just be buy and hold investors. Some local investors, yeah, they're going to probably take a haircut when they try to resell their, their properties, particularly those that maybe bought off the plan, you know, with the old 10% deposit could face some real pain. But, again, the broader market, the established housing sector, I still think, you know, the Sydney market has had a cyclical upturn uh, and it's probably cresting now and it will have a cyclical downturn, as as it's had repeatedly for the past, uh, you know, 20-odd years. But, again, I don't see it uh, as a major, you know, sign of excess, as a bubble that is going to collapse. I mean, Sydney market, again, will probably peel off 5 to 10% in the next down cycle. Um, and other other states will probably pick up some of that slack, um, but uh, yeah. So that's basically the way I read. I think the housing market in Australia. When we talk about a housing market, actually, it's it's probably a bit of a misnomer because it's a very segmented market, and you can get pockets of excess and pockets of slack. And um, it's really hard to looking at the average doesn't really tell you that much. Yeah, that's right. You you can't buy exposure to housing. You buy exposure to a property. Yes, or a particular region or a city, yeah. yeah. So um, what's going on in Adelaide bears no relationship to what's going on in Sydney at the moment. So. Yeah, well, that, in, in so, so very many ways. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, you've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Uh, Greg McKenna, thanks for joining us this week. Thanks, Paul. It's been great. And our guest this week has been David Bassanis from, uh, from, from BetaShares. Uh, David, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Paul. It's been fantastic. You can find us all individually on Twitter. Uh, you can find Business Insider on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. Uh, you can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. Uh, where we'd love it if you could rate us and leave us a review. This show is produced by Josh Nicholas. I'm Paul Colgan, and we'll catch you next week. Today's episode was delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business, helping you save time and money. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when you send on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.